This morning we finish out a series that we've been in now for just a few weeks where we have looked at the four words that really capture what it is we focus on as a church. Those four words are no grow, show, and go. A few weeks ago we started from the bottom there and worked our way up looking at what it, meant, what it means to go with the gospel, what it means to show Christ as we serve him inside and outside the walls of the church. Uh, last week we looked at what it means to grow in Christ, how we grow in our relationship with God through Jesus. And then today I want us to look at a message simply entitled, Knowing God. When I was in seminary, I was exposed to a little paperback book in a class that I took. Little did I realize then how much of a classic that little book was. Published in 1973, now over 40 years ago. It's been translated into over 12 languages, sold over a million and a half copies. It's seen really as a classic in regards to Christian literature. In fact, it was, it was voted a few years ago as being one of the top 50 uh, most influential books that has helped to shape evangelical Christianity as a whole. The impact of this book just cannot be measured. Uh, and yet the title of it is just two simple words, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. You know, I wonder for you, if you could just be honest for a second this morning, and if you could just, uh, uh, just think about yourself from the inside out, taking inventory of yourself, how important is it to you to really genuinely know God? How much of a priority is it for you personally, not your mom, not your dad, not your husband or your wife or your friend or whoever's sitting next to you, but how much of a priority is it for you personally, genuinely, to know God for who he is? Is it more important for you to know God and to know God deeply, or is it really more important for you to know that he's got your back? Is it more important for you personally to know God for who he is and to be growing in an ever-growing, expanding, vibrant relationship with him to where you can honestly say, I am growing in knowing who he is personally? Is that more important or is it more important for you simply to know that he's going to keep the blessings coming? You know, if you turn on especially late night Christian television and if you watch many, not all, but many of the preachers that come on, especially after midnight, what you will find is that the message that is communicated is simply aimed at steering people to knowing more of the blessings of God rather than knowing God for who he is. And there's almost a mentality that pervades our country, that pervades uh, 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 Christianity in our country especially, to where it seems like the focus and the emphasis and the priority is more on God, just keep me blessed and keep me healthy and keep me wealthy and keep me in the center of your blessing as opposed to God, help me to know you more deeply and to know you better and to know you in a consistent way that grows deeper and deeper and deeper every single day. And if we're not careful, man, I'm telling you, we come to a place to where if we are honest with ourselves, knowing God really is not the priority that it should be, and it's really not the priority perhaps that it used to be. And so how important is it to you to really genuinely, honestly know God more personally, to genuinely, honestly know God in relationship to where you can say, my relationship with him is growing. My relationship with him is expanding. It is getting deeper and deeper and deeper to where you can say, my heart's desire is to know God. How important is that to you? It became important to a man by the name of Adoniram Judson. Most probably in this room don't recognize that name, a few would. Adoniram Judson would be one of the greatest missionaries this country would produce. However, he did not always walk closely with God, and knowing God was not always a priority. 
Don't get me wrong, he was raised, Judson was raised in a Christian home. His mother and father knew the Lord and knew the Lord deeply, and they raised him to know God as well. However, when Judson moved out of the house and went off to college, he became friends with a man with an odd name. His name was Jacob Eames. And as that friendship with Eames began to grow, Judson began to gravitate further and further and further away from God. You see, his friend, Jacob Eames, was a deist. A deist is one who does not focus on knowing God relationally, knowing God in a relationship rooted in faith. In fact, faith has no place in the life of a deist. A deist focuses on reason and focuses on intellect. And typically what often happens in the life of the deist is that God gets kicked to the curb. Because Judson's best friend now at college was a deist, it would be Jacob Eames who basically would lead Judson away from his faith to where Judson would become a deist himself, living as though there was no God. Judson would finish college and he would begin to travel. He would break his mom and dad's heart with a letter that he would write to them on his 20th birthday, August 9th of 1808, where he would basically tell them that he was abandoning the faith that they had raised him to walk in. And so Judson would begin to travel the country. He would be one who would be bent on seeing the sights and experiencing the experiences, living as though there were no boundaries in existence whatsoever. One particular night on his travels, he would check into a, to an inn. Now, this is not the Holiday Inn. This is, again, the early 1800s. And so it was a little village inn. Judson would check into that village inn, and upon his check-in, the uh, inn <coughs> keeper, the owner of that particular establishment, would say to him, Sir, I, I regret to inform you that the only room we have available is right next door, directly next door, to a man who we feel will probably die sometime during the night. Judson took the room, and as he checked in and he placed his bags down and he settled in for the night, he began to hear the sounds of people scurrying into that room next door and scurrying out. He would hear the sound of low voices of whispers and, 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 and people speaking. And above, above all of that, he would also hear the sound of this man that he, that he had checked in next to who would be groaning and gasping for breath throughout the night, obviously living out his last days on this earth. The sun would rise, Judson would pack up his belongings, and he would begin to make his way out of that inn. And when he got to the lobby, he would ask the innkeeper, whatever happened to that man next door? And the innkeeper would say, well, I'm sorry to say that he didn't make it through the night. He died during the, during the night. As Judson made his way towards the exit of that inn, he paused and he looked back and he said to the innkeeper, well, sir, do you even know his name? And he said, yeah. He said he seemed to be a brilliant young man from Providence. His name was Jacob Eames. In the sovereignty of God, God would see fit to take this man who had been raised in the Christian faith and who had abandoned God for something far less. And in his sovereignty, God would place him in a room directly opposed to one who was dying. And it was in the experience of that night that Judson would later write how he began to ask questions he had long since quit asking. Questions that even would embarrass him to even go there as a pronounced deist, wondering what is the state of this poor man's soul? Where will he spend eternity once he breathes his last? Oh, and by the way, what is the state of my own soul? He would write later. Judson that day would quit his journeys and traveling, would return to a relationship with God, would place his faith genuinely in Jesus Christ, and as I said earlier, God would use him to become one of the greatest missionaries that this country would ever produce. You know, in this room this morning, just the same as at 9 o'clock, this place is filled with people who are in varying degrees of relationship with God. 
varying degrees of what it means to know God. There are some here that you would have to honestly, if you're being honest with yourself, would have to say, you know what, Brooks, I, I don't know God. I don't know God, and I really honestly have no desire to know Him. Life is good. I've got a good job. I've got a good steady income. got a lot of friends. got a nice family. Seeing the world, enjoying the sights, enjoying the experiences. And I don't know God, being honest, but you know what? I'm content. And then there would be those, perhaps, who are here that would have to honestly say, I don't know God. I don't have a relationship with Him. I don't, in all honesty, believe I'm going to heaven when I die. Uh, And that really bothers me. Because I've begun to think about kind of the big three questions here recently about you know, where I came from and, and why I'm here and where I'm going whenever my time on this earth is done. And, and I'm not content. I don't know God, but I'm not content. And then there are those here in this building that do know God. But even there, there are varying degrees of knowing God. There are those who know Him and know Him deeply. And you've walked with God for decades, perhaps. And your relationship with Him, you think, could not go any deeper. And yet you know there's so much more room to grow. And your knowledge of God is growing and expanding and it's vibrant and you know Him deeply and your life is not the same as it used to be. Then there are those here who used to know God and your walk with God was very, very close. But there was something along the way. Maybe it was a broken heart or a broken dream or certain setback or, or some difficulty that you faced. And now, honestly, you would have to say, yes, I know God, but it's as though I've become stagnant this last 30 days, this last couple of weeks, this last few months, this last few years, this last couple of decades. I know God, and I know I've given my life to Christ, but I would honestly have to say that, man, my life is dry, and my walk with Him, my knowledge of Him is so incredibly superficial, and my, and my heart aches over that, and I'm not content, and I, and I, and I don't want to be here any longer. And, and maybe for you, your faith is shaken, or maybe for you, your faith is, is almost hanging on by its final thread, or you're weary, you're tired, you're, you're confused. And all across this room, All of us are somewhere in that spectrum of what it means, genuinely what it means to know God. I want to give you a principle this morning that I hope you'll jot down. We'll give you another one towards the close. And the principle is this, that knowing God is immediate and yet it is also ongoing. Whenever we think about what it means to know God, knowing God is immediate but yet there is also a component to it that is also ongoing. Knowing God is immediate in this, in that Jesus would say in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so Jesus would really lay out the playing field for us very clearly. The Old Testament would bear witness to this. Jesus would clarify it whenever he would say those words, that no one comes to the Father but through me. So that whenever we do come to a relationship with Jesus Christ, meaning when we come to that place where we understand that we are sinners in the sight of God who is holy. And that whenever we come to that place where we don't just understand that, but we agree with it wholeheartedly, and whenever we respond by turning from our sin, we lay our sin aside. The Bible calls that repentance. That once we lay our sin aside and in one motion turn to trust Jesus Christ in faith, surrendering our lives to him, once that takes place, we immediately step into a relationship with God that will never end. And you maybe remember for you where you were when that happened. You may not remember the day. I don't remember the exact day. You may not remember the time. I don't remember the exact time. But you know what? I very, very clearly remember, remember the moment when I turned from my sin the best that I could and I trusted Jesus and everything he did on the cross to, to be applied to my life. And when I asked him, Lord Jesus, would you forgive me and take over my life and be my Savior and be my Lord? I remember that, that occurrence. I remember where I was when it took place. I remember having that conversation with the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason I remember it is because I was there. <laughs> 
And it was an act of my own will where I knew I needed a Savior and I knew that I wanted a Savior and I invited the only one who could be my Savior to come in and take over. If there has ever been a time for you when you've done that, listen, you began to know God immediately from that point on in relationship. You began a relationship with Him. And if you have never given your life to Christ that way, it does not matter how good you are. And I'm sure you're very good. It doesn't matter how often you come to church. And you obviously are here today. None of those things matter because the only way we can know God in any way, shape, or form is to come to Him through the person of Jesus Christ. And so knowing God is immediate. It is immediate. It takes place in an instant when we choose to repent and believe on Jesus and place our faith in Christ. Everything God has done has pointed us to that place. When you look outside and you see the heavens and you see creation, Psalm chapter 19 tells us that all of those things cry out to the glory of God. They all point us to the reality of who God is, that he is a God who reveals himself through his creation. Why? So that he can be known. You hold in your laps the Bible, God's word. That word is written without error. Everything in it you can trust in, bank on, and you can build your life upon. And God gives us his word. Why? To point us to who he is. Why? So that we can know him. He gives us his word so we can know him. Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus came as the exact representation of the Father, the exact representation of God, that he, Jesus Christ, came as God. For what reason? To show us what God looks like, to show us who he is, to do the work that only God can do for our salvation so that why? We could know him. Jesus came to pave the pathway for us to what? To know God. It's that important. And all of that, God tells us, yet we still come to know him only one way through Jesus. And when we come through Christ, our knowledge of him is immediate. And yet I know there are people, people that you know, people in your family, people in your workplace, people on your street, and maybe even you yourself, who have never given their lives to Jesus Christ. What is the weight of importance that this carries? I came across a quote. I've been a believer for a long time. I've been a believer for a long time. Don't be distracted. Hang with me right here. This is very important. I've been a believer for a long time. When I read the quote that I'm about to read to you, it was sobering. It's a quote by a man named John Piper, theologian, former pastor, author. Some of you are familiar with him. It's a lengthy quote. Read along with me. He says, here is our witness to the world. The risen Christ is your king and has absolute, unlimited authority over your life. If you do not bow and worship him and trust him and obey him, you commit high treason against Christ the King, who is God over all. The resurrection is God's open declaration that he lays claim on every person and tribe and tongue and nation. All authority, he says, on earth is mine. So your sex life is his to rule. Your business is his to rule. Your career is his to rule. Your home is his. Your children are his. Even your vacation is his. Your body is his. He is God. And so if you resist his claim, feel no admiration for his infinite power and authority, and turn finally, finally to seek satisfaction from thrills that allow you to be your own master, then you will be executed for treason in the last day. That sounds odd for us to say, doesn't it? of a God who is loving. Uh, Hang with me. He says, and it will appear so reasonable and so right that you should be executed for your disloyalty to your maker and redeemer that there will be no appeals and no uh, objections. 
Your life of indifference to the risen Christ and of half-hearted attention now and then to a few of his commandments will appear on that day as supremely blameworthy, infinitely foolish, and you will weep that you did not change. Folks, listen, what gets propagated out of churches across this land and put out across the airwaves across this land of a God who only is concerned about your health and your wealth and your basket being full and you being blessed. Yes, God takes care of those needs. Yes, they are on his radar. But listen, the supreme thing of which we must be concerned is not what God is giving us, but do we know him and do we know him deeply and do we even care to go there? That's what matters most. And for far too many, when the blessings begin to slow down and the basket begins to be less full, and whenever adversity begins to creep in, it's those who claim to know him that are the quickest to hit the exit. And the question that begs an answer is, do we really, really care to know God? We know him immediately, and yet we also know him in a way that is ongoing. Listen, just as a marriage does not end when the ceremony is over because immediately you were married, hey, that marriage continues, that relationship grows. In the same way, our relationship with God, our knowledge of God doesn't end because we say, I do, Jesus, will you save me? No, that's just the start. There is an ongoing quality as well as an immediate quality to knowing God. Let me illustrate. Look at this definition here real quickly. It's a definition of love. Uh, Love is a noun. This is moving. This is heartwarming, isn't it? A strong affection for another arising out of kinship or personal ties. Well, isn't that warm, flowery? Guys, why don't you try that one on an anniversary card next time your anniversary rolls around. See see how that one goes. Or maybe you're about to pop the question, you know, the girl you've been dating, and you get, you know, you, you get to that point, and you're ready, and you, and, and you say, you know, I have such a strong affection for you, arising out of my kinship and personal tie. No, no, just don't go there, no. You see, it's one thing to define what love looks like. Let me tell you, at least for me experientially, it's one thing to define it. It's one thing to define the, the love that I have with my wife, Susie, the love that I have with my kids, my three kids, Hannah, Drew, and April. It's one thing to, de- to describe it and to try to define it. But listen, it is a whole, a whole different ballgame to, to, to begin to experience what that feels like. It is one thing to define it. It is another thing altogether to experience it because you cannot put words to a page to describe experientially what I feel in regards to my family, my wife, my kids, and the love that we share one with another. You cannot define that. There are no words in the English language, and you feel the same way as well about the people that you love. There are no words in this language that can capture what it means to be in a relationship rooted in love. And it is the same exact way for us whenever it comes to knowing God. We, uh, far too often, Christians are asked, hey, do you know God? Oh, yeah, I know him. I go to church every Sunday. Hey, do you know God? Oh, yeah, I got baptized back in the 80s. And we try to define what it means to really know God, and we come up with all these definitions that may sound good. But listen, in our hearts, far too many believers cannot describe experientially what it means to know God. You know why? Because there is no experience of that love relationship in their lives with God. They can't point back to say, this is what it looks like when I get bailed out of a mess. This is what it, gets lo- what it looks like whenever God is there for me and everybody else has abandoned me. This is what it looks like to open his word. And it's like as though the Holy Spirit himself jumps out of that book and into my life and gives me joy and gives me peace and gives me hope. Far too many believers can't go there. 
But if you ask him, what does it mean to know God? Oh, it means to give your life to Jesus. It's like a definition on a page, and yet the experience is far lacking. See, I, we have to understand that knowing God is both immediate and yet it's ongoing. And I think I would be accurate in saying that there are probably a significant number of people here. And you know him. And you remember giving your life to him. And you haven't lost your salvation. The Bible doesn't teach that. And yet you would have to say that you're at a place where he feels so incredibly far away. And where there is really no drive or passion to know him any deeper. And in some t- at some times in your life, when the room is dark and everything's quiet, your heart longs for those days when he used to feel so close. The people of God in the days of Ezekiel, the prophet, were not in a good place. Roughly 550 years, give or take, before Jesus would come, they were suffering the consequences of their rebellion against God. God would send them into exile, his own people. They would be drugged out of their homeland, taken as captives, as slaves. Three separate deportations, basically, where they were drugged out against their will, taken to the land of Babylon. It would be the worst of days for the people of God. And yet God would speak in Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37 about his plans for them. In Ezekiel 36, God would begin to speak about how he would begin to give his people a new heart. It would be a new heart to replace the old heart they had, the heart of stone, the heart that had become hardened and rebellious against God. God would say, you know what? The day will come when I give you a new heart. He would speak about a new spirit and how the day would come whenever he would replace their old spirit of of sin and disobedience with with a new spirit that was bent towards him. And so he would get this message to them through Ezekiel the prophet in chapter 37. I want you to read along with me. It's an extremely dramatic vision that God would give to Ezekiel that would paint a picture of what God can do with those who have wandered so far from God. Ezekiel writes and he says, The hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. The picture there is a picture of the aftermath of battle. A great battle has taken place, and the, the enemy has won and has departed, has picked the bodies clean, taken their possessions. And what lies now are those that have lost, the slain. And their, their bones fill this valley As Ezekiel looks, he says, in the middle of the valley, it was full of bones. And he, God, caused me to pass among them round about. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, he says. And lo, they were very dry. The picture here is that God is painting an analogy of what he's going to do with his people. And you cannot miss this, that that this picture of dryness captures a spiritual reality for far too many people, especially perhaps some that are even here this morning, where you feel dry and you feel disengaged and you feel somewhat dislocated from God and from his people. Uh, you're at a place perhaps where you're, you're, you're caught in some sin that you're not willing to put down. Or maybe life has been very hard and, and, and you're dry. You were dry and you were weary and you were hanging on by a thread. God continues the vision, verse 3. 
He said to me, son of man, he says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord, you know. Ezekiel is at such a place of being overwhelmed that as he looks out over this vast expanse of nothing but bones in this valley, God says, Ezekiel, this is God speaking to him. Do you think these bones can live? And Ezekiel is so overwhelmed by what he sees, he cannot even answer the question. He does not say yes, he does not say no. All he can do is fall upon the sovereignty and the power and the grace of God. And he says, oh Lord God, you know. Have you ever been in a place in your life that has been so incredibly dark, so incredibly difficult, so incredibly uh, 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 saddening to you, where you feel oppressed, where you feel as though you'll never come out of that pit? Have you ever been in a place like that, where somebody said, do you think God can even bring you out of this, where you could say, only he knows? Have you ever been there? Verse 4, and again, God said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you and make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, put breath in you, that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. In other words, God says, I will do what only God can do. I will do the unthinkable. I will accomplish what you cannot even imagine And when it is done, you will only be able to point one direction, and that is to me, as to what you've just seen take place. Verse 7, so I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, Ezekiel says, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone, and as I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, breathe on these slain that they may come to life. And so I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they came to life and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And what Ezekiel had witnessed there before him was that what once had been scattered was now unified. What once had been dead was brought to life. And what he saw there was what had overwhelmed him by the hopelessness of the situation had now brought him to a place that he would never forget because God showed up and God did only what God could do to bring life and breath to that which was dead. It's all said and done. Verse 14, you move ahead. And he says, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land, he says to the people of Israel. And here's the result of it. So important. He says, and then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it, declares the Lord. And to those who were... To those who were in places of absolute and total desperation, to those when you were asked the question, do you long to know God? They would say, yes, I do, but I have no idea how to get there. It's to those that God brings life. And to those who don't care, perhaps it's experiences like that with Adoniram Judson that will get them to the place to where knowing God matters more than anything else on this earth. That passage in Ezekiel chapter 37 in my Bible on the heading, every Bible is different in this regards. The heading says the resuscitation of the nation. Maybe for you. Maybe for you. That's what you need. You know, my desire, my hunger to know God is on life support and I just need to be resuscitated. I need to be revived. I need life. I close with a second principle. 
that I think is so important for us to keep in mind as we seek to know God. And the second principle is this, that knowing God means to know Him as your Lord. As your Lord. Not to define Him as the Lord, but to know Him as your Lord. Knowing God is both immediate and it's ongoing. Do you know Him today? Do you know God? Have you come to that place where you've given your life to Jesus Christ? If not, you don't know Him. You may have warm thoughts about Him. You may enjoy TV shows that seem to portray Him. You might buy tickets to the movies that come out about Him. But man, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ and fallen on your face, figuratively speaking, before Him as a sinner in need of rescue, and if you never called on Jesus and trusted in Jesus who died a gruesome death to take your place as God, to die in your place as your satisfactory payment, if you've never invited Him to come in and to forgive you a sinner, to replace that sin with His perfect righteousness, if you've never turned from that sin, invited Jesus in to do all that, you do not know God. And the good news is that he moves heaven and earth and he gives you creation. He gives you his word. He sent his son. He's alive through his spirit. And he gives messages like this to help to draw you to that relationship. But at the end of the day, you got to come. So do you know him? Christian, if you do know him, does your heart long to know him more deeply? You know, we just finished our last worship song with a song that talks about knowing God. Longing to know him more and more. Sad to say, if I were to have asked what was the last song we sang before I preached, I'm guessing the majority of people would have had no idea. Disengaged. Man, it's more than a song. You can't remember a song? That's okay. We all have those moments. I forgot to pray last Sunday when I said I was about to pray. That happens to everybody. (laughs) Hey, you forget a song, that's one thing. But you come to a place where you've heard the gospel and you've rejected him or you know him and he calls you deeper and we don't go. That's another whole other ballgame. And today, man, I'm telling you, he loves you. He loves you. And he made you and he came for you. And he died for you and his spirit draws you today because he wants you to know him and to know him deeply. Today you can if you give your life to Christ. He'll come and he'll rescue and he'll save. He'll take over. And I can tell you as one who's been there, you'll never be the same. Let's pray. Lord, all over this place today, there's not a one of us who can say we don't need you. Lord, we could have been saved for 60 years or more and we could have spent time with you every day And yet there's not one of us here who could say that we've come to the depths of knowing who you are. God, how sad it is for churches like this, churches all over this world really, filled with Christians who are content, who are content on the surface, getting good, warm, fuzzy feelings and keeping our bread baskets full of blessings. We're just content there. While, God, we miss the miles and miles and miles, the depths and ocean full of the depths of what it means to really know you for who you are, to know you more than just a definition, to know you experientially, to know you because we trust you, to know you because we love you, to know you because we 
follow you. We're, we're committed to you. We're surrendered to you. God, we want to be those people. And I, I just pray today. God, you know my heart. You know, there are messages that I preach that I, I feel in my spirit that it may be the most important one I've preached in a long time. And this is one of those. But God, this, this message will be for nothing. It will be a big, fat waste of time, God. And you know it, unless your spirit moves. And so, God, I pray today as we sing that we'll just do real business with you. And God, that we'll invite you into our mess. That we'll invite you into our hurt, our brokenheartedness, our pain, our suffering. We'll invite you into our blessings, our victories. And God, that we would just take a moment over these next few minutes to humble ourselves. We don't want you to humble us. God, we want to choose as an act of our will to humble ourselves before you because you tell us that when we do, we will see you for who you are. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see Christ. They'll see you. But yet when we humble ourselves, it's you who raises us up. And so God, we pray today for those that don't know you, the right where they sit, that it'll be a moment like this that will help them to see that they desperately need a Savior. And that right where they sit right now, even, even as I'm speaking, they'll be having conversation with you, Lord Jesus, confessing their sin, confessing that they need you. Asking you, Lord Jesus, to take what you've done on the cross and to apply it to their life, that they might know you forever. God, even now, I pray that those who are lost will be having that conversation with you, Jesus. And God, for those of us who already have done that, Lord, I pray that we'll ask you to take us deeper. And it'll mean something. Knowing that that deeper might involve some struggles, might involve some hard lessons, might involve giving up some stuff we don't want to give up. But God, they are but, they're but a shadow compared to the reality of who you are. And so God bless these next few moments, we pray. Let us not be ashamed of our tears. Let us not be ashamed of to lay ourselves before you because you laid yourself out for us first. Make these next few moments ones that will change our forever. And we thank you for what you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>